Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Derek Hansen, Dan Paff, Jason Heller, James Wilde, and Jonas Doddu. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this episode is a little bit different, so not a live episode, but I've pulled together the best bits from different podcasts and pulled together them into one episode. So in this instance, it's around on the, around the sprints. So I had loads of guys on that have, uh, that have discussed this and featured in this episode. There's also some that haven't featured and they will feature in a part two of the Sprint Masterclass uh, podcast episode. So in this one, we have uh, Derek Hansen and little bits of audio of Derek talking about uh, microdosing. We've got Jason Heller talking about periodization, supplementary work and acceleration. We have Dan Paff talking about Franz Bosch and his methods. And we have James Wilde discussing force velocity profiling. And last but not least, we have Jonas Doddu talking about vertical integration and action typing. So a slightly different take on the podcast, but I thought given 192 episodes, there's so much in the back catalogue that many people haven't realised is there. For instance, James Wilde in episode 60-something, 50-something, I mentioned the episode, that people may not be aware of, but at the time, um, some unbelievable information and still some great information that I want to draw people's attention to and pull out the best bits from these episodes into, uh, into one podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. I'd like to do more of these and pull these best bits in from uh, episodes that have got common themes. So velocity-based training, whether it be strength and power, whether it be, again, in this episode, sprint training, whether it be GPS, all that kind of stuff. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks and months, there'll be more of these kind of masterclass podcasts, which kind of set the scene for maybe people diving a little bit deeper into each individual episode that's featured. So a little bit something different, but I'd love your feedback on it. Is it good? Is it something to do more of, do less of? Uh, again, as always, would love your feedback. Please feel free to uh, message me on Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdeperformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at valdeperformance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valdeperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valdeperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So big thanks to Forstex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forstex.com but also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstech, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstech, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So without further ado, over to the Sprint Masterclass with Derek, Jason, Dan, James, and Jonas. 
So we're going to kick off this masterclass from episode 183 of the podcast, which was with sports performance consultant Derek Hansen. So one of the first questions that I asked Derek was around microdosing, and it's a, it's a topic that he's written and spoken about a lot over the last couple of years. Um, Simply Faster's blog, uh, sprintcoach.com, various different places where you can find Derek's views on uh, on microdosing. But in this short clip, um, we discuss what microdosing is and what microdosing isn't. And then towards the end, uh, a little bit of context given by Derek on, um, on microdosing, where it should, maybe shouldn't be used. Um, so first up, uh, one of the most uh, downloaded episodes I've had over recent times. Um, so yeah, over to Derek. Yeah, um, it's an interesting term uh, because it, it tends to you know refer more specifically to pharmaceutical testing, um, but also uh, recreational use of of different hallucinogens. So definitely you know, wasn't meant people that, have meant said by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People people have said people have said. Well, you know, Carl Valley always said like we should call it microloading because I don't want to get you know pulled down that rabbit hole of drug use, right? Like, oh, okay, <laughs> it'd be more interesting um, if we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. Um, you know, maybe there's some value in actually giving athletes LSD as part of their micro dosing. Um, but it really came down to this, you know, during some taper uh, periods for track and field athletes. And I was doing some work with Charlie Francis and we were talking about, okay, in the 10 day taper, how do you change things? Right. And he said, you know, he used, he would always typically uh, in the main part of the training uh season he would have people doing like a high day which would be more speed heavy lifting plyos and then a low day which would be you know more aerobic systems general circuits so either you're working at a high intensity or you're working at low intensity and then we got into a um, a tapering period and then we did traditionally high intensity qualities every day uh, in this taper period and so i'm like well well, why are you doing it every day? Doesn't this deviate from your high, low, you know, 48 hours for CNS recovery? And he says, well, yeah, it does, but it really doesn't because uh, we're doing, we're probably operating at 40 to 50% of the volumes uh, for the high intensity components, maybe even less. So you're not going to have the same impact on the nervous system uh, and definitely not the peripheral system. So you can actually do high intensity stuff every day and not have, uh, the same uh, negative impacts because we've dropped the volume. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then ultimately we'd go through a 10-day taper and people would perform magnificently after that taper uh, in a competitive environment. So I started, you know, I thought about it and I said, okay, well, why can't we do this all the time? Particularly, you know, when I started working with uh, NFL teams and we looked at in-season um, microcycle planning and looking at the week and uh how much energy and time they had to, to work on certain qualities from the strength and conditioning point of view. And they don't have a lot of time and there's not a lot of energy um, because it's being pulled into different, you know, practice and meetings and <clears throat> even their social lives. So I started to look at how do we use very potent um, high intensity training components uh, and training elements to kind of hit them you know, on a daily basis uh, in very short periods of time so that we could uh, first and foremost maintain qualities. So maintain speed, maintain strength, maintain explosive qualities. Um, and, and in some cases, uh, maybe even advanced qualities because we're being much more precise in when we do it, how much we do it, and we're maintaining a very high, high intensity of, of output. And when you do that, things start to get interesting. Things you actually find that, hey, I didn't need to do as much because I'm giving them more time. I'm more precise about the application of it. And so the adaptation they get is more profound because the the output is higher. And I think when we look at classical periodization, we think of blocks. And the problem with blocks is that you think, oh, I got this block or the space of time where I've got to plow in all of this volume and all of this work. And I've got to work on plyos. I've got to work on uh, aerobic qualities. got to work on some lactic qualities, possibly. I've got to work on weightlifting. I've got to do speed. I've got to... And so you end up actually bogging yourself down by not being as precise and just thinking I've got to shove everything into this block. 
um, when you can probably do things every day in smaller amounts, probably do overall less overall volume, but maybe actually a higher volume of high intensity components because you're stripping away all this crap. Um, so I know I'm sounding very convoluted right now, but I think it's just a more precise way of of dispensing work um, in smaller amounts. And because you dispense something in a smaller amount, the effect on the organism is more profound. And I think, you know, maybe that goes back to um, looking at taking LSD in very small amounts because, <laughs> you know, maybe you get a more profound effect. Like if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm smoking marijuana every day, you know, three times a day, four times a day, you know, after a while I tend to get numb to the effects of it. But if I'm very precise with smaller doses, you know, maybe I get a more profound effect. I've never smoked marijuana, so I can't tell you. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kind of surmising that this is what's happening out there. Um, you know, so we ha- you'd have to get Snoop Dogg on <laughs> to talk about that. Wow, that would be interesting. But Jeez, that's yeah, that's a different podcast. So how does that? So how does that integrate with? The stuff that goes on traditionally in the gym, does that have to fall in line with this microdosing concept? Or can, in your opinion, does that kind of continue down its own path alongside this kind of sprint? Well, there's, there's, this whole, there's a whole contextual piece, right? So um, if, you, if you don't, like say, like, like in the weight room, if you don't do certain exercises – over a, a long period of time, like so let's use Olympic lifting for an example. If you've never used Olympic lifting uh, and you're not skilled at it, it's not a very good tool for you to use any other time during the season because you're not lifting much weight. You probably don't have much velocity behind your lift. It's probably unsafe. So by virtue of the fact you haven't developed this this skill and this quality and accumulated some work, it's now not a very useful tool to you. Um, same with sprinting. Like I'll say, oh, people should sprint in season. And of course, some moron goes, oh, let's start sprinting in season and they pull a hamstring. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, but you got to do it in the off season too. So if I do, you know, if my volume is at 100 units in the off season, when I bring it down to 30 units in season, it's not that difficult. And I'm actually very, I can do it very easily without getting hurt because I've done 100 units over here and now I'm doing 30% of that. So if you don't do you know, a cer- accumulate a certain amount of work in the off season, um, you're very limited to what you can do in the in season. If all you did was rubber band work and balancing on BOSU balls for your off season, you're screwed in the in season. You, you can do 30% of the rubber band BOSU routine in season. But if you've lifted heavy weights and you've done explosive work and you've sprinted and accumulated a good amount of volume over that off season period, now you can use these very high intense components in season uh, to kind of tweak and, and maintain and refine. And, and I think that's what people miss out on is you, you, you have to have developed this base of work um, so that you can, um, you know, be exceptional in season and, and have more tools available to you. And I think um, it's kind of like you're developing your vocabulary in the off season. And so, you know, when you go and you do an interview with somebody, hey, I've got all these words I can draw on because I'm a little smarter because I did all this work in the off season. Whereas if you don't, if you don't read any books and you don't talk to people, and then you have to go do an interview with somebody, you're you know you're you're tongue tied. You don't know what to say. You don't you know you're very uninteresting. Cause um, I think it's the same. It's the same thing, right? So next up is a clip from episode 175 where I spoke to Jason Heller, who was the strength and power coach at Altis. So this is one of the first questions that I posed to Jason earlier in the conversation around periodization. It kind of set the scene for the for the podcast which followed, uh, where we discussed acceleration, uh, special strength exercises, Franz Bosch's methods. Uh, but in this short audio clip, uh, we discussed periodization. So Jason's theory on periodization and some of the thoughts of the other guys at Altis uh, and how they program for their athletes um, across a number of disciplines, across a number of um, specialities um, over at Altis. So over to Jason. Yeah, um, it, it's definitely a topic of, of hot discussion lately. And and I've really been enjoying some of the stuff that John Kiley's been putting out around it. And it's really gotten me to, to question 
a lot of what we base a lot of our formal education on, uh, just as a system, at least throughout the United States, and, and a lot of what we do, whether we're questioning general adaptation syndrome and some of the advances in, in scientific understandings that we've had since then, and, and looking at you know various counters to that, whether it's hormesis or activation theory. Um, still trying to work through it all and see really what does periodization, what does periodization mean and, and where does it fit? Uh, but for now, we, we look at periodization and, and how we operate at Altus through what we term a complex parallel lens. Uh, and I know there's a lot of different terminology now around periodization. <clears throat> and so some folks may call it something slightly different, but for us, all that really means is, is we have three major objectives on the track and we have three major objectives in the weight room and we'll get into those, but from a standpoint of periodization, it's, it's touching each of those objectives each week, at least for most individuals, most of the time. So on the track, that's acceleration development, speed development, and speed endurance. And then in the weight room, it's for us dynamic effort, max effort, and repetitive effort, or more of a work capacity focus. So we'll hit each of those each day on the track. Sometimes they'll match up with acceleration and max strength, speed and dynamic effort, and then speed endurance and work capacity which makes for a really nice blend of the training. Sometimes it won't for various individuals with different KPIs, but it really will allow us to touch each of those any given time of the week. And we just feel that's a little bit more appropriate for this population. Uh, developing athletes, maybe you want more of a concentrated block type periodization, working on specific abilities and then building from there. But with the training age that we work with and, and the skill level and ability that we have here with the athlete group, it really works uh, quite well with Complex Parallel. So this is the second clip from Jason Heller on uh, episode 175. So in this, it kind of, it just takes that first comment, that first uh, audio clip a little bit further on Jason's, uh, Jason's thoughts on periodization, but more in particular how his theory relates to actually what goes on the track um, and a really interesting little segment um, from that translation from kind of theory to, uh, to practice and what happens day to day. Yeah, so if we look at acceleration development, um, we're looking at, at shorter reps for us as typically anywhere from 10 meters out to possibly 40 meters. Um, our speed work usually comes kind of building off of that more 60 to 90 meters. And our speed endurance will come from anywhere typically from maybe 120 meters up to, to 250 meters. Uh, at least that's with the short sprinters. Um, and then that's going to change a lot throughout the year. So we're going to take a gradual progression from the grass and flats out to the track with spikes, with blocks, solo runs, and then running next to somebody and slowly building from there. But hopefully that lays out a, a general idea of, of how we'll target those. Um, it gets a lot more in-depth than that and, and happy to go into it. Uh, but then as far as the weight room, our zone one, we call it for the dynamic effort. It's, it's long range of motion exercises. For us, we really like the clean grip snatch. It allows for a lot of time really to generate velocity on the bar. Um, our, our max strength is our compound lifts. We're looking at intensities 85% and up, uh, higher rest, three to five minutes, lower reps, anywhere from, from one to five typically. And then more of the work capacity type sessions, it's, it's really limiting the rest, uh, higher reps, 10 to 12 possibly. And then we'll use a lot of unilateral work there just as an avenue to increase some time under tension. We're very particular and, and quite careful with our prescription on the work capacity. Uh, obviously, with our population, hypertrophy is, is a contraindicated for most people, at least. Um, so that, that's one of the zones that, that comes out pretty early in the year for some individuals that they may never even see that type of loading parameter. Um, but it really just, just comes down to an individual basis after that. So this is the third clip from the uh, fantastic episode I did with Jason Heller in episode 175. So this little clip talks about uh, the supplementary work that he implements over at Altis. And then further on in the um, in this small uh, snippet for, of audio is around uh, his views on Franz Bosch's methods and how they are integrated into his, uh, into his program at Altis. Yeah, a few things that we'll do 
uh, sort of from that avenue is, well, a lot of posterior chain work, um, a lot of work for the hamstrings, especially. Uh, for that, for us, that usually starts isometrically uh, and or eccentrically. It, it depends a little bit on the individual and the time of the year. But that's usually one of two areas that we'll start with. And then progressing that into into what we refer to as reflexive eccentric, which I believe came from Berkshansky to begin with. Um, but it's really fast, light loads, really trying to trying to get a quick eccentric contraction out of it and in some ways trying to replicate what they're going to experience when they're sprinting. Uh, and then the other avenue for the supplementary work uh, is a lot of the Bosch type stuff that, that's coming out and, and being quite popular. For us, we're still, we're still figuring where exactly that fits within our methodology and our philosophy. But for right now, it's, it, it almost serves as a bridge, so to speak, between the warm-up that we'll do in the weight room and the main pieces of the session. Um, so it's a lot of a lot of context and stability around the high knee or A position. I think Bosch refers to it as a hip lock position, uh, but really trying to target that position, which is obviously very important to sprinting through a different environment, through some different velocities, loads, and and really hoping to allow our athletes to get quite comfortable coming in and out of that position, as well as the contact on the ground. So that's that's where the stability stuff comes in. That the videos I've seen on your online with the uh, kettlebells either side. Yeah. So so the hanging band technique we we refer to it as, um, but that, that's where a lot of that'll fit, uh, as well as uh, quick steps or or anything you may have seen along those lines. Different, more track specific looking drills and exercises. They will typically fit in that area. Some of the upper body uh, presses with a hanging band technique, that will be a little bit more of the main session, um, at least on some days that we target upper body, which doesn't typically happen very often. But for that, we're just looking at stability through trunk and core and, and as well as shoulders and upper body, just trying to get some almost system, system, systemic excuse me, stability throughout that. That's a tough one there. So this is the last clip from Jason in episode 175. So in this clip, Jason discusses acceleration. So again, this is something that Jason has written a lot about uh, most recently on the Simply Faster blog. So he talks about his theories um, and his uh, methodology around building acceleration, not only in track and field athletes, but in team sport athletes as well. So over to, over to Jason on this one. So Stu McMillan really turned me on to this idea of projection, rhythm, and rise. Uh, he was the one who first introduced it to me. And, and so for us, those are the three key concepts of acceleration. And for me, you know, as I mentioned, coming from more of a, an S&C background into a track and field environment, this idea and this understanding of projection, rhythm, and rise really expedited my development as a sprint coach. Uh, it lays it out very clearly, from my opinion, and, and touches on the holistic nature that a sprint should be, uh, and then makes it very simple again for to add meaning and, and reduce complexity for the athletes. So I've really hung on to this idea of projection rhythm and rise, and and it factors into to cueing and the training of every day. Um, and then I'll just change slightly based on on the population that I work with. So I'm fortunate enough to do, especially this winter, do some work with uh, a handful of professional baseball players. And so while I, need, I may need to talk to them slightly different or in a different way, then, then I'll talk to the elite sprint population. All the same concepts still apply. And, and so it's, it's first starting with an understanding of what projection, rhythm, and rise actually means, and then building on it from there. So diving a little bit further into those, projection is, is very much twofold. So we're looking at the angle of projection off that initial impulse, so we can think of the shank relative to the ground and what that angle may be, as well as the hips projecting horizontally through space off that initial impulse. So as far as the angle, it's, it's a matter of trying to maximize that and, and make that efficient for each individual. Uh, I think some people get caught in the trap of, of this idea that a 45 degree angle is optimal for everybody. But we'll see some elite sprinters with, with very good force and power abilities coming out of the blocks at an angle of 30, 38 degrees. And, and some women who may be on the elite side coming out in the high 40s in terms of degrees. 
So it's really finding where an athlete fits based on their abilities and, and some of its limb length and, and what other factors may come into play to optimize that angle. But a big myth, I think, around acceleration is these short, choppy steps and, and possibly a, an issue with speed ladders. And, and speed ladders may have a time and a place for, for some people or for some objectives, but in terms of accelerating and accelerating properly, I think it you have the potential for some negative carryover from that because we want longer strides. We want hips projecting forward, really allowing the time, uh, whether it be against the, the starting blocks or the ground, to produce some force and get out there. So that kind of covers projection. Uh, building from that, we have rhythm that very much plays in line with that. So if we think about our ground contacts in terms of the rhythm of the progression of the of the sprint, and we think about this clap being the ground contact, and it's going to start slow and slowly increase with each step. So as the velocity increases, we're going to need to see a change in that ground contact and in that frequency. Also in relation with all that then is rise. So as the velocity is increasing, we need to see a gradual rise of the center of mass of the hips and the shoulders in a uniform nature to allow for the proper force application. So hopefully that lays out sort of the holistic nature between the three and how they all play into each other. And it's really difficult to have one without the other, but by breaking it down into each of those objectives, it can make it very clear for the athletes of what to think about and what to work on, and then try to blend it all together from there. So this short audio clip comes from episode 87 from head coach Altis Dan Paff. So if you haven't listened to this episode, make sure you do because there's it's, it's pretty short. It's only just over half an hour, but there's some absolute gold. And if anyone, I've just heard great things about the stuff that's going on at Altis. Um, and obviously Dan epitomizes that with, with 40 years um, in the industry. But this short clip discusses uh, Franz Bosch's methods and where Dan thinks they fit. Um, and a little bit of controversy that obviously surrounds um, surrounds Franz's methods uh, and how he goes about kind of delivering those methods. So it was a pleasure to get Dan on, uh, a pleasure to speak to him, and I'll uh, I'll leave this up to him to uh, to explain. I think it's obvious to anybody that's read Franz's work or heard him speak or whatnot. I think he's a you know a very brilliant guy who promotes a lot of thinking and discussion. Um, I personally, uh, you know, unless I'm unaware of it, don't have a lot of his type of programming and thought in my programming. Um, I think that, and I'll be honest and upfront, I've never attended one of his lectures and I've only read pieces of his writing. So, you know, it's probably not a fair uh, assessment of what he's about or what he thinks or how he thinks. Uh, some of the guys on our staff here at Altus, though, are uh, students of Franz's work and have integrated some of his stuff. So maybe something got lost in the translation or the integration. Uh, but it's it's kind of a concern I have, you know, with drills or adaptive training exercises, things of that nature, is they supply context. And for some of the population, that context is a positive. Uh, for other parts of the population, it may be a negative. And as with any isolated teaching methods or drills or teaching progressions, um, there's a shelf life to these things. And there's a point where uh, cost-benefit analysis of doing them and the integration into the whole and the actualization under real-time uh, movements uh, come up lacking. So while he could have very valid and useful tools. I think to get stuck in just building programming around those tools or having them formulate the bulk of your programming of various menu item subcategories uh, may not be always the wisest thing to do. So why do, why do you think it's, it's become so popular? What's, what has kind of lured people into to his way of thinking? Well, I think he's great at challenging thought and existing paradigms. I think he writes well. I think he presents well. Um, I think anybody that's been in the business uh, three or four decades have seen a lot of uh, 
interesting concepts and paradigms come to the fore and then fade, you know, a decade later. I'm not saying this will or won't, but from the vantage point of 40 plus years, I've seen a lot of magic bullets come down the pipe. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with uh, with the Sprint Masterclass guys. So in part two, we have James Wilde from episode 64 discussing force velocity profiling using jumps, but also using sprints. We also have Jonas Dodu discussing vertical integration and periodization, and then action typing as well. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast so far. Again, a little bit something different. Would love your feedback on that without saying that too many times. But just before we do get into part two, I just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have been a big supporter of the podcast for, I think, probably a year now. Uh, And I really appreciate their support to allow the podcast to continue in its current form. So I know a couple of uh, English clubs, both in rugby union and in uh, in the Premier League have recently taken on Fatigue Science to look at their sleep monitoring when, especially when travelling um, as well as other European clubs having a look at their um, their sleep scheduler again when crossing multiple time zones for pre-season uh, tours and things like that so if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science have a little look at the website uh, fatiguescience.com but also on their Twitter at Fatigue Science. I've done a couple of intros to these guys for people that are interested. So if you are interested and you just want to know a little bit more, feel free to reach out and I'll happily put you in touch with um, with the guys over in Vancouver. So over to part two with uh, James and Jonas and hope you enjoy. So this next clip delves right back into the archives from December 2015 when lead SNC coach at Surrey Sports Park, James Wilde, came on the podcast. So amongst other things, um, we discussed force velocity, force velocity profiling, and then force velocity profiling using sprinting, which has since developed, and there's apps out there that can, that can do that kind of thing now. But at the time, uh, we discussed, in this short audio clip, James discusses uh, force velocity profiling and why you might go about spending your time doing that. He goes into a lot of detail with um, with how he goes how he goes about that and why he goes about that in the athletes that he um, that he trains and still trains this day I believe. Um, so great little clip from James and this is one of two. So the next clip uh, is James as well. But uh, enjoy. I think what I'll do is kind of put it into the context of the rest of the profiling, if you like, of the yeah, test. Yeah, go for it. So so it forms a part of a wider um, battery of tests that I'll typically do. I've kind of become relatively comfortable now with um, assessing, you know, if I want to um, test the strength power qualities that I feel are relevant to it, accelerating in particular, accelerating in terms of sprinting, then it forms a part of the rest of the testing battery. So I think maybe if I talk through all of the tests within that and, and, and explain it, then it'll probably make a little bit more, more sense. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. My tests really, that there's a number of them. One of them I have completely stolen and and modified. Well, in fact, they're all stolen, really. But one of them that I, I've stolen uh, a hip extensor torque test from uh, John Goodwin at St Mary's, and I've amen- amended that slightly. But but I'll do um, essentially a unilateral hip extensor torque test. So if you imagine someone lying under a bar that's fixed, so the hips are fixed under it, um, the heel is on on a false platform, the other legs up in the air. Imagine you're trying to hip thrust the bar up, um, so we get and, and the, the the hip will be set to a certain angle, so you can get a peak force measure from the hip extensors, um, and then if we multiply that by the distance from, say, the gross greater trochanter to point of contact on the force plate, then we can get hip hip torque. Mm-hmm. So talking an isometric. So, so sh- shoulders on the floor or shoulders on a bench? Yeah, no, sh- shoulders on okay. the floor. Okay. And so with that, I mean, we all know that, you know, the hip extensors are pretty important for sprinting. Um, I think there's fairly recent work from JB Maureen that's coming out um, that literally today, I think there's a paper on it as well, but just showing that, you know, just prior to ground contact, the activation of the hamstring is pretty important. And then there's other research showing that during the first third, really, of um, ground contact, particularly in the first kind of few steps, that the hip extensors are um, like primarily responsible for horizontal accelerations, acceleration of the center of mass before the, the ankles tend to kick in after that point. So the hip extensor 
test that I do for me, it is really quite an important one. Um, it's very reliable in terms of the peak falls you get. One of the drawbacks with it is that it, it, it's really difficult to get reliability around RFD measures. Um, so I just kind of don't bother on that front now. But but aside from that, I, I still feels it feel that you know it gives me quite a bit of information to work on. Um, other than that, I'll, I'll go through um, some drop jump assessments, both bilateral and uh, unilateral. Um, and I guess my main reason for that is that regardless of the, the stage of the sprint that you're, you're in, your, your ankles are always going to dorsiflex before plantar flexing. And, and yes, okay, drop jump does involve the knee, but I use it more of a, a, an ankle stiffness reactive strength type measure because the interaction between the hips and the ankles is really quite an interesting point. So I alluded to the fact that the hip extensor moments um, are primarily what tend to drive you forward in the first third of stance in, in, in acceleration anyway. Um, and then the, the ankles typically kick in for the, the, the other two thirds um, or, the, or the remainder of the stance. So it, it's all very well having these, these powerful hip extensors, but if you're then not able to stabilize and, and be stiff through the ankle, and then to have the elasticity to kind of snap the ankle back and propel you forward for the the, the um, remainder of the stance, then it's not really going to be that beneficial. So yes, hip extensor torque and strength and power is important, but you then need the, the stiffness and the elasticity around the ankles to be able to transmit that force through the floor. So I'll, I'll, I'll have my um, RSI measures that I'll do bilaterally, unilaterally to, to help kind of assess that side of things as well. Um, and yeah, you get really quite an interesting interplay between the hip and the ankle. So one of the common trends that I've seen quite a lot, especially with faster people, is that if they're rubbish with their RSI, then their hip extensor talks are usually pretty good. So whether it's some kind of coping mechanism, they know that, well, their ankles aren't going to propel them forward that, you know, to a great extent during stance. So they're potentially using their hip extensors more to try and counter that. Um, it, it's quite an interesting relationship and I often find it as well on people who say have had a, an injury um, so there, there's a sprinter at the moment that I'm working with who um, relatively recently had a stress fracture of his ankle and his RSI on that side single leg as you'd expect it pretty poor but his hip extensor strength on that side is much greater than the non-injured side so it's his coping mechanism of essentially trying to pull himself through ground contact rather than pushing off sooner through the ankle. Um, so that that's a really kind of interesting relationship to me. And you, you'll sometimes see, um, you'll see those strength imbalances, if you like, in how they actually sprint. So it, it's quite common, not always, but with that type of relationship and imbalance is that if someone's weaker or less reactive through the ankle and stronger through the hip extensor on that side, then they'll tend to strike further forward of their center of mass and essentially pull themselves more through ground contact. So potentially risky in terms of, you know, does it increase the likelihood of, of overutilizing the hip extensors and raise the risk of a hamstring strain, particularly in the later stage of acceleration, quite possibly. So, um, you know, for me, that, that, that area is interest, not just from a performance point of view, but also from a, an injury prevention side of things as well. Um, anyway, so I, so in, in a way, I, I kind of placed those, those two tests almost more important than the false velocity profiling side of things. Now, obviously, I, I, I'm a big fan of the false velocity profiling side of things, and I think it helps tell you a lot. But the fact that, you know, sprinting is much more hip extensor and, and ankle kind of driven as opposed to the knee, um, the, the, the false velocity profiling is definitely a useful adjunct, um, but it's kind of um, you know, almost secondary to those. And when I say false velocity profiling at the moment, I'm, I'm referring to it in, in the squat jump rather than the sprinting, which we'll probably touch on a little bit later. So as I mentioned, this clip again is from James Wilde uh, from episode 64. In this short clip, James explains why you would go about false velocity profiling using, uh, using sprints instead of jumps. So for the, the false velocity profiling um, in a sprint that I do, and this is a really interesting area which is gaining quite a lot of momentum really, but it's again, it, it's stolen from Samazino and Maureen and, and, and those types of uh, researchers and it enables you to run a false velocity and power profile for athletes, but during a sprint. So obviously it's going to be a lot more 
um, relevant in terms of sprinting rather than just a jump. I, I haven't got a radar gun, so I, I, I use it through knowing split times. So I'll take uh, 0-5 meter split times through the use of a high-speed camera, and then 10, 20, 30, 40 meter uh, split times with light gates. And I'll then input this data along with various info on, on the athlete in terms of their height, their mass, and what the temperature is, uh, where we are, into a, a ridiculous spreadsheet, which then, then spits out the relevant information for me. And so knowing an individual's full velocity profile during a sprint, it helps give you a bit more information than just simply knowing split times alone. So if you can identify that an individual's force or velocity capabilities are low, for example, then it may be that your training can focus on the deficient area to bring about favorable changes to their force velocity profile and their sprint power and ultimately sprint performance. So it can be quite useful to, to monitor. So it's one of the things I do with the England lacrosse girls on a you know, quite a regular basis. And one of the things I'm trying to identify is how different training programs affect an athlete's full velocity profile during a sprint. And what I've seen so far is that there isn't necessarily a, a clear response. So, for example, some individuals in response to a more force-type program that might include, um, I don't know, say heavy sled work and heavy hip thrusting and, and similar type activities. Um, so some of them are increasing their force capabilities um, when monitored through the sprinting, but for others it has the opposite effect and it's driven up the, the velocity side of the equation. Um, so it's difficult for me to have complete control over what everyone does and so the effects of the programming in the gym and outside may not be a true reflection of uh, or, or its effect on the force velocity profiling in the sprint but it's still quite an interesting area and, and, and in my opinion it it's going to come down to you know a, a lot of factors of how someone responds um, in terms of their training history or other physical reasons um, or not that, that might kind of unlock their potential to bring about more favorable changes to their full velocity profile when, when sprinting. So this audio clip comes from episode 55 from Jonas Dodu, who is a speed movement coach, but also owner of Speedworks. So obviously diving back way into the archives from October 2015. But in this clip, Jonas talks about periodization and his views on uh, vertical integration, which I know he has spoken quite a lot about um, over the past couple of years. So in this clip, obviously, um, it's kind of delving back to the start of this uh, speed masterclass in terms of periodization, but it kind of made sense to come here uh, and be placed here after the, uh, after the chat from, um, from James and Dan. So over to, uh, over to Jonas Dodu from episode 55. <laughs> and it's funny because um, terminology and um, semantics is, is hilarious. You talk to Americans and you talk to European guys and everyone talks quite differently. Vertical integration, concurrent training, conjugate training to me are all the same thing. Um, in fact, if I was to describe my training, I reckon I've got some kind of vertical integration with undulation, with, with, with some kind of blocks uh, system going, going throughout it. And I'm trying to have some kind of phase potentiation, um, cycle to cycle or, or, or block to block. So I, I think, you know, we, we sit down and we read the old science or we read the old papers and we, we think that we can sit in, in one, in one, uh, school of periodization. But I think essentially, uh, year on year, my guys, I'm having to find more ways to create variation so that I can actually have some kind of stimulation to their systems. So year on year, or the more advanced my guys get, the more I'm trying to play around with, with the different things. But back to vertical integration, my thoughts are that acceleration is a skill and it's a skill we have to practice from the beginning. I think acceleration is king and I think we have to always be um, practicing what our end result is. So if you're a rugby player, if you're football, if you're, if you're I don't know, uh, a court sport, if you're athletics, I think we should be practicing and playing around with some kind of acceleration from the beginning that means we're playing around with some kind of power some kind of rate of force development um from the beginning um but i think the old rules apply i think we need to start in a place where developing capacity is key um and and gradually move from capacity towards intensity um and specificity so that gradual move um, from capacity to intensity um, or from extensification to intensification or from GPP to SPP to comp, that gradual move is, is, is basically a gradual move from 
in your first phases where acceleration is in the program as well as capacity and maybe general means of training um, moves from acceleration maybe being a tertiary uh, goal with with capacity being your primary goal or your, or your concentrated load towards almost it all flipping around where acceleration and speed is and general specific capacity being perhaps secondary and tertiary to that. Mm-hmm. Does so, that make sense? Yeah, it does, mate. Yeah, yeah. So just one, one thing I want that to vertical, touch. Sorry, sorry. On, sorry. That no, vertical integration phrase or terminology is, is a Charlie Francis terminology. Um, and you look at concurrent and conjugate models that, you know, you, you can see throughout different um, uh, periodization gurus and, um, phys- uh, and uh, theorists. But essentially, we're talking about working all components at all times throughout the year, but some components taking a back step to others, depending on your phase. So this final clip is again from episode 55 and Jonas Dodu. So we talk about action typing. So this is something that's been uh, come up again relatively recently, and I think always is a kind of common thread in um, speed circles uh, across the world. So action typing, so pushers versus pullers. So in this final audio clip, Jonas gives a real clear view on uh, on action typing and uh, how we may go about um, coaching them that uh, maybe fall into either into either of these buckets. So over to Jonas to explain that much, much better than I have um, and enjoy this final audio clip. Okay, I use the term action typing loosely. So there, there is a there are two guys that come out of Europe who are who have a, a business called Action Types, and they are, they apply phys- physical testing to create psychological profiles based on Myers Briggs, um, and a phys- physiological testing or physical testing essentially um, starts to put people in in categories of of if they're front or back dominant, if they're high or low frequency. Now, you you need to talk to those guys to get the, the nuts and bolts of that because I even though I've been trying to use it and talk to them over the past four years, I still feel like I only understand 25% of it. But clearly, as coaches, anyone in, in any experienced coach can clearly look at their, their group of athletes they have now over their career and start to put them in some category, some kind of category. And that's all, all that I really wanted to to be clear with when I, when I talked to the action types. The psychological stuff, is interesting, but I just don't understand it enough for me to talk to you now about it. Um, even if I'm applying it in my in my own in my own coaching, but essentially, we all see pushers versus pullers. We all see quad dominant versus versus hamstring or posterior type dominant athletes. We all see uh, concentric versus elastic type guys. Guys that like to spend time on the ground. That's how they produce their force. Guys who actually are very frequency based and like to move very very quickly. Um, we all see, you know. Um, Guys that are uh, again uh, more stride length dominant or maybe stride frequency dominant, um, and this manifests itself as a result of people's nervous systems, their training history. Um, it, it might manifest itself in terms of what, um, how, how, how much tendon they have compared to muscle mass in a certain muscle. So hamstring, how long is it the tendon? Or you look at someone's calf with a really high calf with a really long tendon, they, they look more like a greyhound. Um, or you see it look like look at someone with a really long calf and a short tendon and they're probably a bit more endurance based, a bit more concentric in their action. So we're we're all seeing that and the more I talk to coaches, they've all got their own terminology. You you, you talk to Steve um you talk to uh Stu McMillan and there's a term he uses pushers versus pullers and, and James Wilde has been using that a lot in his research. Um and and we all we're all seeing that, but not a lot of people are figuring out. Okay, well, some of these guys, if they're pushers versus pullers, or if they're concentric more than elastic, some of these guys have um, uh, are more likely to get specific injuries. Um, are more likely to respond to c- certain types of stimuli, to certain length of cycle. Are more likely to s- respond to certain cues more than others. Um, some of these guys look at the world in a different way to others. So, so it's important for us as coaches to start to compile this information on our, on the different types and and find a way to quantitatively assess this um, with you know be it force profiling, be it movement analysis, be it speed profiling. Um, 
so that that's kind of where I, I'm going with that is, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at our athletes, their skill sets, how they apply force, um, where they're likely to break down in terms of injury. Um, and we're trying to prescribe interventions, um, cues, uh, exercise exercises that are specific to their needs and try to almost cut out the faff and um, cut out the stuff that doesn't really matter or has less uh, influence on performance and health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of times there, uh, pushers versus pullers. How? So when you've defined that and you've got two different athletes in obviously in two different groups, how different are their programs? Is it is it very fine tweaks or is it kind of radical changes? I think it's fine tweaks. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, uh, let me go back one step. I think we can all do both. Of course, we can all push and all pull. That's not, that's, the point isn't um, what someone can do or can't do. It's, it's, it's actually what are they almost designed to do? What is the, what is the path of least resistance? Um, and as a result, what are the likely injuries that are going to happen and what are the likely cues that are going to work? I think, you you know, you look at pushers and, and these guys tend to be able to, uh, regardless of the speed, be able to move a lot of force or produce a lot of force and move a lot of weight, um, uh, tend to want to reach out a bit more in front and spend a bit more time on the ground. So we know what their strengths are and, and a big part of my philosophy is keep their strengths strong. So if I know that someone first to spend more time on the ground um, perhaps has more muscle mass or at least has a longer uh, uh, has a bigger proportion of muscle versus tendon, um, I kind of know, okay, where should my SNC program go with that and, and where should uh, the the priority in that program go? Again, I run a concurrent program, so we're doing everything. We're doing everything throughout the year. There's a vertical integration of, of all of our components, but perhaps my um, concentrated load um, in the work that I'm doing is is more towards that person's strength um, versus their weakness. And and I think in your GPP, in your winter, in your off-season, you work on someone's weaknesses. And as you get closer to when they need to perform at their best, you work on their strengths. So essentially, I, I think we, we maybe were designing or maybe I'm suggesting a, a model that flips around depending on someone's strength. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. If you got this far, I really hope you enjoyed the best bits on this uh, Sprint Masterclass podcast. So as always, love your feedback. Should this be happening more? Should I pull in the best bits from other uh, episodes that have got common themes? Strength and power training, GPS, uh, RPE, um, movement screening, uh, athletic development, whatever it may be. Let me know what uh, topics resonate with you and if this should be happening more or indeed less because I'm more than happy to to bin it if it's not what people want to hear. Uh, massive thanks to Val Performance, Forstex and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. And thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And I will speak to you in episode 193.